Last Friday night, I didn't sleep at all. Maybe you'll remember that's when we had the first big windstorm of the season, and it wasn't anywhere near the biggest windstorms that we've had here, but because it was the first one of the season, and because it lasted a really long time, it was pretty eventful, especially at my house. I live in the woods, and literally 20 feet behind my house are trees, fir trees that are probably 100, 120 feet tall. I mean, those things are massive. And branches on fir trees are as big as trees in other parts of the country. And so anytime the wind blows 35, 40 miles an hour, there's gonna be stuff falling off of the trees hitting my house. And the wind scares my dog. So I was up all night long, downstairs, finally get the dog settled down and some gust would come up and the little fir cone things, the little tips of the trees, you know, some of those bigger branches are hitting the top of the house, hitting the side of the house, and it freaks him out because he doesn't really understand that they sound much worse than they actually are. And so I tried to comfort him, I tried to tell him it was okay, I know the trees are bendy, I know when it's gonna end. He doesn't know any of that. He just knows that it's scary and he doesn't like it. So I did everything possible in the midst of a really scary situation for him to reassure him that it was okay. And a week later, I am still tired. And that's like a lot of life right now. There's a lot of scariness out there. There's things that are keeping us up at night and it's really easy to lose our bearings. It's really easy to feel despair and to lose hope. And it would be so great to be reassured and to feel a sense of hopefulness instead of hopelessness. And that's why we keep looking at Jesus, because he has a bigger and different perspective than we do. And every once in a while, I put myself in that situation, and I know, I'm not sure if it's great to compare myself to my dog, but, you know, Jesus has the perspective that I don't have and he can see the bigger picture that I can't. And that's really the, the reason that we've been in these sermons is to understand who Jesus is and what his perspective is because that can help make a difference in our lives. So the scripture we're looking at this morning is out of Matthew chapter 24, verses one through 14. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, this is another peculiar passage, and I don't want us to miss the setup of what's going on here because context, context, context. So to begin, let me state the obvious. When it says Jesus left the temple, it means that Jesus had been in the temple. And that's important. He's been in the Gospel of Matthew in the temple for several chapters now. And it starts with the cleansing of the temple and then with teachings and arguing with the Pharisees and the leaders, talking about how the, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. He laments how the people and the temple and the leaders have lost their purpose. He's talked about how the whole thing has become corrupt. And he's talked about how the blessing of God has been removed from it. And then Matthew notes, Jesus leaves the temple. Okay, because it was done, because it was dinner time, it's an important note, but it means virtually nothing to you and me. But then what does he do? He heads to the Mount of Olives and looks back over the city of Jerusalem. So, okay, he was heading back to his hotel, he had to go that way, and it, the reference means virtually nothing to you and me. But... Both of those things would have meant something really big to them. So Jesus leaves the temple and sits on the Mount of Olives. They would have heard echoes of one of the stories that haunted these people the most. And it came out of Ezekiel chapter 11. And it's the story of when, because the disobedience of the people, They've been sent into exile, and the glory of the Lord departs the temple. And uh, Ezekiel has this vision where the glory of the Lord rises up from the temple, goes across the Kidron Valley, and hovers over the Mount of Olives. And then it leaves. And God is gone from the temple, and God is gone from, this, the, from the people. So this is a passage about how the Lord has left the temple and is doing something new. So why has the Lord left the temple? It's because it's no longer serving its purpose. That's one point. But the bigger point is because now Jesus is going to become the temple. So am I talking about you know, a big building? No. What is a temple? A temple is a place where you go to meet God. And with what Jesus is doing, you're not going to have to go to a place anymore because the temple of God is not a building. The temple of God is a person. That's what Jesus does. When Jesus dies on the cross and is raised on the third day, he bridges the gap between us and God. Heaven and earth, God and people all meet in Jesus. So the temple is no longer going to be in just one place and held by just one people. The temple is going to be Jesus, and it's, his presence is everywhere. And in some ways, that kind of brings things back around full circle to the beginning. Because if you carefully read the Genesis account of cr the creation of the universe, it's actually presented as God creating the universe as a temple where he's glorified. And that's probably why when we go out kayaking or hiking around Mount Rainier or see some of the beautiful things around us, we see the grandeur of the universe pointing to God because the universe was created to be his temple. 
And so in some ways, the temple being removed from the building and being everywhere brings us back to the future. So this is the story about how God's salvation is breaking into the world and is making all things new. This is a story of hope. Hope in the midst of despair, hope in the midst of difficult times, hope for a future when everything is made right. So let's look a little bit deeper out of it. So the initial movement is they're walking out of the temple area to the Mount of Olives. And here's a picture of that just to give you some spatial relationship. It's not very far at all. It's just across the shallow valley and up a little bit, maybe half a mile tops. And along the way, they have this discussion about how amazing the temple is. Now, here's another uh, picture. It's a slide of, of a, a recreation of the temple building. And as you look at it, you can sort of visualize what it must have looked like. First of all, the platform that you can see there is actually four times the size of the land that our church sits on. So it is a massive structure. And Herod's temple in the middle of it is widely acknowledged to be one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And some of the stones used in the building of the temple are like 20 feet long. I mean, massive. And they're like, look at this temple. Isn't this super impressive? And Jesus goes, yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. And they're like, what? I mean, it blows their minds. It's like it would be impossible to even think about how this could be. I mean, my goodness, it took 46 years to build. How are you going to destroy it? And then it actually becomes a personal thing because not only are they incredulous that you could tear down a building this size, but they can't imagine life without the temple. Their whole life has been surrounded, has been focused on the temple. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It represents God. And to think about this thing not being there rocks the foundation of their entire lives, like when we brought drums into church. So Jesus says the thing is going to be destroyed, and they can't even picture this. And if the temple is going to be destroyed, it can only mean one thing, the end of the world. So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come to him privately, and they're like, tell us when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And what they've done right there is they've combined two separate things, the destruction of the temple and Jesus' return, because they can't imagine one happening without the other. If the temple is destroyed, it has to be the end of the world. Now, I don't want to get too much into the nature of prophecy or Jewish apocalyptic literature, which this most certainly is. It's helpful for us to realize as we read the passage, and the passage goes to the whole chapter, reading just a portion of it, that Jesus is really answering two questions, not just one. When is the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you going to return? And Jesus says, I'll give you the answer to the one question, but I won't answer the other one. The temple is going to be destroyed before this generation passes away. It's a couple of verses further in the passage. And nobody knows when the second coming will be. And it's important to note the clarity with which Jesus speaks of the second company coming. Nobody knows. But mostly, what Jesus wants to do in this conversation is to reframe what's going on and what is going to happen in the future. So Jesus says, look, it's scary out there. 
And then he lists some of the scary things. Wars and rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. You'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Yep, Jesus, that's scary. And a lot of it actually feels very fresh. It feels like the situation that we're living in. This list is like reading the news every day. And I think that we can identify with some of the unease and distress that the disciples felt. And even with this sense of dread, with all this stuff going on, is this the end of the world? Jesus says it's scary, but isn't done talking. You should generally let Jesus finish. It's scary, but it's going to be okay. And if there's only one thing that the gospel is about, it would be this, that there is hope. And in one of the most challenging moments in their lives to this point, Jesus faces the future with them and says, it's going to be okay. And that's not just a nice sentiment that's detached from reality. That's from the God of the universe that is already standing in the future. It's going to be okay. And here's another amazing thing, which is why it's always helpful to read the text carefully. Jesus says, you're worried about this being the end? It's just the beginning. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, what he isn't saying is that things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. That's why we have to be careful how we read these texts. It means that, I mean, what does birth mean? Something new is happening. And that's been what Jesus has been trying to tell us all along throughout the Gospel of Matthew. All these things that are coming, these are signs that the kingdom of God is at work, that the kingdom of God is being birthed among us. All these bad things, I mean, why would the powers of evil that hold the world in bondage give up willingly or give up easily? But the kingdom of God is being birthed among us. So in the light of that, Jesus tells his disciples to do two things. First, in verse 4, Jesus says, Watch out that no one deceives you. Cling to the truth. That's how you keep from being deceived. That's why we're spending so much time talking about Jesus, so that we know the truth of what Jesus actually says. Watch out that no one deceives you. Specifically because of verse 5, many will come and say, I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. So, what's the Messiah? The Messiah is the Savior. So be careful of people who say they're the Savior. Now, we're pretty savvy. So if somebody came and said, I'm God, we would spot that. We would recognize that they weren't God. But that's not what they come and say. That's not really what Jesus is warning against so, so much. More likely, they're going to say something like, I'm the hope of the future. Or I'm the only one who can save you from these things that scare you. Because one of the biggest political motivators is fear. And I just keep reminding myself what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and sound judgment, which we need so that we won't be deceived. Nobody's going to come and say, I'm God, but they will come and say, I will save you from this thing that's scaring you. And how would they deceive you? Because they'll promise what you're looking for. What do we look for when we're afraid? We look for security. We look for peace. We look for order. They'll tell us 
that what they stand for is right. And we'll be like, oh, that sounds like what God would want. That sounds like God would be in favor of that. But the deception might be that it isn't done in the way that God wants it done. It's like borrowing Caesar's weapons from the sermon last week. And over and over, particularly at the end of his life, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the Messiah is not a political figure. I, I trot this out every once in a while. I love what one of the presidents of the Covenant Church, Gary Walter, said one time in an election year, reminding us that we don't follow an elephant or a donkey, we follow a lamb. And that's important because all politics will require compromise. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't give away more than we gain, like getting a temporary political win at the expense of our integrity or how people view us or Jesus. And remember what the marks of the kingdom are, what the tools of the kingdom are, love and justice and mercy. So don't be deceived by another savior. The second thing that he says, verse 6, is, See to it that you're not alarmed. You will hear of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Why? Wars are scary. Why would you not be alarmed? Because you know how it ends. Now, nobody wants to suffer. If you want to suffer, that's not Christianity. That's potentially a mental illness, and you need to see someone. But willingness to suffer is something else. And there are lots of things that we willingly suffer for. Giving birth, putting kids through college, helping someone we love through an addiction, being in the pool every single morning before 6 o'clock so that you can train to win your race, making the hike to get to the top of the hill for the view, getting up every morning and exercising so you don't die young. There's all sorts of things that we will willingly suffer for because we see the payoff. And so suffering is possible, but there is an enormous payoff because we are working along with God for his plan and purpose. But some of the things that Jesus mentioned, we need to be aware that we don't attach too much significance to because the world is just broken. And sometimes the things that happen are just things that happen. Like in verse 7, when he says, says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. That's always been true. And it always will be true until the second coming because it's just a sign of brokenness. It doesn't mean that the end is here. So in the midst of all this scary stuff, though, we have this unique opportunity. While everybody else is freaking out about the news or falling prey to some false messiah, we can just keep doing our thing of loving people in Jesus' name and living lives that show that we trust God and that our hope is in Jesus. I love Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So all of this scary stuff will happen, but interpret it correctly. Don't be deceived and remember it's going to be okay. And then he adds two more words of encouragement. Verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And that has a context too of verse 10 and following. At that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. What he's talking about is, it may become increasingly hard to be a Jesus follower. 
and some people will just give up because it's too hard. We talked about people turning away from the faith. How would that happen? Well, you can reject Jesus outright, but I think more and more likely is that we reject the ways of Jesus. Lots of times because we equate peace and quiet and being comfortable with the will of God. And we saw this during COVID. There was a bit of shaking out of whether people were really truly dedicated to God or whether they were really just mostly interested in something else. Ultimately, maybe this is just people sorting themselves out. There will be some of the people who would be like, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And others will be like, you know what? Honestly, they're just things that are more important to me. He also says that many will betray and hate each other. And that just means that we have to be really careful how we treat each other in the Christian community so that we don't fall into that, particularly in our congregation. And then there's this line in verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That's a little cryptic, but I think the idea is that when wickedness grows, it's going to be responsible for a failure of the fundamental Christian ethic of love. I mean, remember, Jesus says they'll know us by our love. But because we see things happen that we don't necessarily approve of, we see people doing things that we think are wrong, it would be very tempting to forget to live out of a posture of love. We have to remember that people are people, not political issues, not social issues. We can have opinions, and we don't have to believe that everything is right. It's not. But we have to remember that every person is made in the image of God, even the ones you don't agree with, even the ones you don't approve of. So while all of this craziness is going on, Jesus encourages us to stand firm in the faith, cling to Jesus, don't be deceived, don't compromise the ethics of the kingdom. And the promise is, you'll be saved. It's going to be okay. And then in verse 14, he says this other word of encouragement, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What Jesus is talking about is that nothing is going to stop God's plan and purpose. Not wars or rumors of wars, not false messiahs, not the breaking out of evil, not sin, not Christians who quit. No matter what happens, God will fulfill, will fulfill his plan and his promises. You can count on it. Now, does that mean that you're supposed to spend time counting how many unreached people groups there are around the world so that you can guess when Jesus will return? No. The purpose of this verse is to remind us that in all of the chaos that's going on, as we seek to not be um, disheveled by it, as we seek to hold on to hope, is that we've got a job to do. We are part of Jesus' plan and purpose to reach the entire world. And that's what should be occupying our time. So it, it's kind of like we look at everything that's going on in the world and we can respond with despair, we can respond with hopelessness, or we can look full into what's going on, see the future, and go, God, you've got this. I may have a preferred future. I don't want things to be bad, but I know in the midst of it, I can trust you. I was thinking at the end of the uh, service last week, we sang a song, um, and the, the gist of it is that we are no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. 
And I listened to us singing that song, heartfelt, and I wondered as we were singing it, do we really believe that? It was also the Sunday of lament, and I can think of so many things that would be so easy to be afraid of. What happens if the war in Ukraine breaks out? What happens if China invades Taiwan? What happens if the cancer diagnosis comes true? What happens if this thing, there are so many things that we are afraid of. And in that moment, I think it was genuine. I think we really believed that we didn't have to be a slave to fear because we, were, we are the children of God. The trick is to remember to live into that and to bring that to mind when we go through difficult things that would cause us to feel hopeless. To remember that Jesus says all the stuff is going to happen, but remember it's going to be okay. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what scares you right now? Number two, what do you think is the biggest challenge for the church in navigating these difficult times? And number three, how does knowing that God has a plan and purpose help you to have hope? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.